Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We gather today to consider three nominations. Mr. Robert Pence is the President's nominee to be Ambassador to Finland. Dr. Judy Shelton is the nominee to be U.S. Executive Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And Mr. Trevor Trena is the President's nominee to be the Ambassador to Austria. I want to welcome all the nominees uh, and their families and friends. I want to thank all of you for your willingness to serve this nation. Um, certainly congratulate you for your nomination by, by President Trump, and I'll let you introduce your family and friends in your opening statements. And before moving to those opening statements, I would also like to welcome our distinguished colleague from Texas, Senator John Cornyn, who will introduce our nominee to be the Ambassador to Finland. Senator Cornyn. Well, thank you, uh, Chairman Johnson and Senator Murphy and to the members of the committee. I'm honored to be here. And uh, let me just start by congratulating all three of the nominees for their nomination and their willingness to serve. But I'm especially proud to uh, introduce Robert Pence to serve as the United States Ambassador to Finland. Bob is a founder and chairman of the board of the Pence Group, a uh, development company, but he's much more than just a successful businessman. He's a leader whose civic engagement is extensive and rooted in deeply held and a deeply held sense of public obligation. For example, Bob serves on the board of directors for a foundation run by the actor Gary Sinise that supports our veterans and our first responders. He cares deeply about education and the arts, too, having served on the boards at George Mason University, American University, and the Kennedy Center here in Washington. He's taught at Georgetown and Yale, and quite incredibly, uh, He's got not only a law degree, but multiple master's degrees in subjects like Italian and Renaissance literature. You might literally say Bob's a Renaissance man. But I do believe he's still working, he said, on his last chapter on his uh, PhD dissertation on Dante. Um, in short, Bob exhibits all the finest attributes of a diplomatic leader. He's an entrepreneur and a lawyer. He's an advocate, an educator, and a lifelong student of the world and history. He knows how to collaborate with all different types of people and has plenty of relevant experience that will aid him in this new capacity. Finland, as the committee knows, is an increasingly important country geopolitically because it shares an 800-mile border with Russia. It's on the front lines of Russia's attempts at hybrid warfare, its attempts to influence the news, as well as diplomacy and elections. And there's a lot we can learn from Finland's experience combating uh, those sorts of uh, activities. Further, the Helsinki Accords show that Finland has long been near the center of global politics, both as a host of and participant in them. And more recently, Finland assumed the two-year rotating chairmanship of the Arctic Council. Finland's a valuable partner and a close friend of the United States. We work together on issues like trade, in the defense context, we've recently signed a bilateral defense cooperation agreement. Our relations with Finland are underpinned by our shared democratic values and close ties between our people. About 700,000 Americans trace their ancestry to Finland and about 200,000 Finns visit the United States each year. Bob, I'm convinced, understands these connections acutely. In short, I'm grateful to Bob and Susie for responding to the call to public service and the president's uh, offer of the nomination of this important position. And I'm here to offer my unequivocal endorsement of Bob Pence as the next ambassador to Finland, and I appreciate your consideration of this nomination. 
Well, thanks, Senator Corden. You're certainly welcome to stay, but we know you have a busy schedule, so you're also free to uh, go on to your schedule. Finland and Austria are important benchmarks for the strength of transatlantic relations. Since the end of the Cold War, Austria and Finland have followed clear Western trajectories. Both are pluralistic democracies and have robust market economies. Both joined the European Union in 1995, where Austria has the sixth and Finland has the seventh highest GDP per capita. And both joined NATO's Partnership for Peace program in the mid-1990s, allowing them to develop working relationships with the alliance. Last year, the US, Finland, and other NATO and EU members established a center in Helsinki dedicated to countering cyber attacks, disinformation, and propaganda, which we all realize is a, a huge problem, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe. Austria has been a strong U.S. partner in promoting stability in Southeast Europe and has advocated forcefully for incorporating the rest of Western Balkans into the EU. Austria and Finland have also supported EU sanctions on Russia for its actions in Ukraine despite considerable cost to their economies. Austria and Finland's clear embrace of the West is a testament to the strength of Western institutions and transatlantic solidarity. If confirmed as the highest representatives of the United States to these countries, you will both be tasked with maintaining and strengthening these important relationships. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development was founded to aid the transition of former communist countries from planned to free market economies. Unlike other multinational development banks, it is tasked with promoting private sector development in countries that are committed to democratic governments, governance and market economies. As the largest single shareholder, the United States must use its influence to promote sound investments and honor that bank's unique mandate. Before introducing the nominees, I'd like to recognize our distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Welcome uh, to all of you. I want to thank uh, our nominees uh, and their families uh, for being here today. You're all going to serve uh, in different roles, uh, but the common thread binding uh, this panel all together is your responsibility for furthering our transatlantic uh, relationship with Europe. Um, these relationships remain close. Uh, they are irreplaceable, but they are uh, strained right now, as you will find uh, when you get on the ground. This is the first hearing that we have had since the president submitted his budget for the coming year, um, and it's just unbelievable th that this attack on diplomacy and on the State Department continues with another proposed 30% cut to the State Department and the USAID. At a time of rising instability, with refugee flows at their highest since World War II, now is the time to be investing in the tools that help manage these challenges, uh, not uh, proposing dramatic, drastic, and draconian cuts. There's no other agency in the federal government today that has been targeted by this administration like the State Department, and you're gonna feel that uh, when you are on uh, the ground. If the United States isn't leading, uh, then countries like Russia and China, Saudi Arabia and Iran fill the void, bringing with them values that look nothing like the ones that we bring to the table when we are present. Um, if confirmed, uh, Mr. Pence and Mr. Trena, you're going to be representing the United States in Finland and Austria. Well, neither of these countries are members of NATO. Both Finland and Austria are important partners to the alliance, and Finland in particular is seeking a, a much closer relationship with us. 
Uh, equally critical is our representation on the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, this is a bank that's been focused historically on Eastern Europe, the post-Soviet republics, but more recently on North uh, Africa and the Middle East. And uh, in these places, um, uh, a strong private sector uh, is so vital uh, to political stability uh, that often, that, as we know, accrues to our national security. Uh, thank you all for being here today, and I really look forward to your testimony. Thanks, Senator Murphy. Um, again, I, I want to thank the, the nominees, their families, and encourage you in your opening statements to introduce your families and friends. Uh, I don't think I can add really to Senator Cornyn's introduction of uh, Mr. Pence, but Mr. Pence, if you'd like to present your opening statement. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy, distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as President Donald Trump's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Republic of Finland. I'm also grateful to Senator Cornyn for his gracious introduction of me to this committee. I'm humbled by the President's selection of me for this position and for the support of Vice President Mike Pence, who, I might add, is no relation of mine. I relish the opportunity of working with Secretary Rex Tillerson and the competent and dedicated women and men of the State Department at Mission Finland and in the various federal agencies whose portfolios touch and concern Finland. If confirmed, I will direct all of my energies in meeting the trust and responsibility placed upon me. I'm here today with the love of my life, Susie, our three sons, Steve, Jeff, and Brian, and their children. Our parents, Hank and Stella, and Bud and Dolly, have passed on. The memory of them and the love, guidance, and support that they and the rest of our family have given me makes my being here today possible. I'm a lifelong Washingtonian. I built a career over the past 47 years in commercial real estate. My work has led me to develop many of the management and diplomatic skills I expect to call upon if confirmed. My projects have involved substantial interactions with political, administrative, civic, and business interests. If confirmed, I look forward to working with President Sally Ninistu, Prime Minister Juha Sipila, Foreign Minister Timo Soini, and the Finnish people in their civic, cultural, educational, military, and religious institutions. I am most proud of my part in establishing the Gary Sinise Foundation, which supports veterans, first responders, and their families. I've also supported our troops through my work with the American University Law School, and are proud to have participated in launching a program that allows those who have served honorably in the military of the United States of America to attend our law school tuition-free. It has been an incredible honor to have served on various boards at the Kennedy Center and with my wife, Susie, as members of the Kennedy Center um, um, International Committee, which travels abroad to, to um, advance and, and um, create the Kennedy Center Gold Medal in the Arts program. That program is at the root of our relations with other nations, their citizens, and their cultures. The nexus of my professional and private interests is most evident in my role as chair of the construction committee of the new building at the Kennedy Center. You see it rising on the Potomac today. If confirmed, I will bring similar dedication and leadership to America's relationship with the government and people of Finland. In December, Finland celebrated the 100th anniversary as a sovereign nation. 
Finland has transformed itself from a farm and forest economy to a diversified modern industrial economy. To, de to do so, it needed a highly educated and technically trained workforce. It has succeeded. <laughs> if confirmed, I will employ all of my professional and philanthropic and other experiences to advance our nation's interest and build upon our alliance with Finland. America has welcomed Finland's integration into Western economic and political structures. Finland provided the venue for the Helsinki Accords of 1975, the terms and conditions of which Russia has not yet fully complied. Finland joined the European Union in 1995 and, while not a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it joined NATO's Partnership for Peace program and was designated a NATO Enhanced Opportunity Partner in the 2014 Wales Summit. Finland is a member of both the Arctic Council and the Northern Group, two alliances formed to deal with the complex military, commercial, and ecological issues confronting the area. The important strategic relationship the United States has today with Finland is reflected in the numerous high-level engagements over the past year to include reciprocal visits to Finland by Defense Secretary Mattis and a visit to Washington to meet President Trump by President Ninishtu. Finland's security concerns match our own. North Korea's escalating armaments development, the deteriorating situation in the UK and Ukraine and Crimea, and the threat of Russian and Chinese naval exercises in the Baltic and the Arctic. For a country of about 5.5 million people, with an expanding economy and a GDP of $240 billion, Finland punches far above its weight. If confirmed by the Senate, I assure you of my commitment to enforce Secretary Tillerson's clear mandate. My paramount obligation is to ensure the safety and security of the embassy and its personnel and their families. The events of last week in Montenegro reinforced this priority. <coughs> Excuse me. I will also lead Mission Finland in accord with three values clearly enunciated by Secretary Tillerson. Accountability, honesty, and respect. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy famously challenged <coughs> all Americans to ask, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My answer is this. I wish to take this step to pay back in some small way the country that has offered me so much. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Pence. Our next nominee is Dr. Judy Shelton. Dr. Shelton is the nominee to be the Executive Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Dr. Shelton currently serves as Chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy and is a Senior Fellow at the Atlas Network. She is a former Senior Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of two books on global economic developments. Dr. Shelton has testified before Congress on numerous occasions as an expert witness on international finance, banking, and monetary issues. Dr. Shelton. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, distinguished members of the committee. I am grateful for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am honored that President Trump has nominated me to serve as the U.S. Executive Director for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Please let me take this opportunity to acknowledge the support of my husband of 40 years, Gilbert Shelton. I'm thankful that our son, Gib, is also here today. And I'd like to recognize my mother and California, 
Jeanette Potter, who is watching along with my sisters and brothers. More than three decades ago, in the mid-1980s, I was doing postdoctoral research at Stanford University after having been appointed a national fellow by the Hoover Institution. I found myself examining Soviet economic and financial statistics that purportedly reflected the robust condition of our nation's formidable nuclear adversary. I found it odd that the Soviet government would go to such pains to present itself as economically self-sufficient, even as its new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, was aggressively seeking loans from the West. What started out as a scholarly treatise evaluating the impact of Western capital on the Soviet economy turned into a hard-hitting policy book published in January 1989 with the rather startling title, The Coming Soviet Crash. It had become apparent during the course of my research that the USSR was going bankrupt. That development had significant implications for the national security of the United States and the overarching defense strategy of the West. Urgent plans for what would become the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development were converted into reality by April 1991 to meet the challenge of an extraordinary moment, the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe and the dawning of a new post-Cold War era. From the start, the charter of the EBRD has embraced the unique mandate that only countries that are committed to democratic development are eligible to receive financing assistance. The emphasis has been on empowering the private sector to move recipient countries toward market-oriented economies and to promote entrepreneurial initiative. And while those guiding principles have proven to be key success factors for transitioning nations, they are still met with grim resistance where authoritarian tendencies are entrenched. The expansion of bank operations into Mongolia, Turkey, Egypt, Lebanon, and other countries beyond its original region poses additional opportunities as well as potential tests. The United States has always been and remains the bank's largest shareholder. My objective, if confirmed, would be to ensure that the EBRD focuses on high-quality infrastructure projects that promote economic growth. At the same time, I would work with our allies to maintain high standards in the cause of freedom by demanding that countries achieve genuine progress toward democratic ideals. Because a nation can go bankrupt in ways other than just in the financial sense. As a member of the Board of Directors of the National Endowment for Democracy, I served as the designated board expert on Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus for nine years, from 2005 to 2014. From that perspective, I witnessed the dangers of backsliding on fundamental civil liberties and human rights. I came to deeply appreciate the importance of democratic institutions to guarantee fundamental freedoms and uphold rule of law. When the bipartisan NED board elected me chairman last year, I was honored and humbled. Recognizing that political and economic freedom should advance hand in hand would seem to be a powerful prerequisite 
for vigorously representing America's viewpoint at multilateral development and financial institutions. Democracy and free enterprise share the same moral underpinning. In short, given my background in analyzing the strategic implications of global financial developments and my strong commitment to democracy, I cannot imagine a more stimulating challenge or more meaningful responsibility than to take on the role of safeguarding our nation's vital interests and deeply rooted values at the EBRD, should you deem me worthy of serving as U.S. Executive Director. Chairman Johnson, Senator Murphy, and members of the committee, thank you for considering my nomination. I would be most pleased to respond to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Shelton. Our final nominee is Mr. Trevor Trena. Mr. Trena is the President's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Austria. Mr. Trena is founder and CEO of If Only, a company that allows buyers to purchase unique life experiences and donate a portion of the proceeds to charity. He has held nonprofit advisory positions at the Fine Arts Museum in San Francisco, the Haas School of Business, and the Princeton University Art Museum. Mr. Trena is an alumnus of Princeton University and St. Catharines College at Oxford. Mr. Trena. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee, <clears throat> I'm humbled to be here today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to Austria. I'm excited that the President has presented me with this opportunity to work with the White House, Secretary uh, Tillerson, and the highly capable team at the State Department and the U.S. Mission in Vienna. <clears throat> I'm delighted to be joined by my amazing wife, best friend, and partner in all things, Alexis. With her are our two wonderful children, Johnny and Delphina. They sustain me, and they have been very brave at the idea, if I am confirmed, of leaving their friends and moving halfway around the world. A diplomatic post is both an honor and an obligation. I learned this from my grandfather, Wiley Buchanan, who was the United States Chief of Protocol and Ambassador to Luxembourg, as well as Ambassador to Austria, the very same post for which I am being considered. My grandfather is no longer with us, but he would be absolutely delighted by my nomination. This is not a guess, but the sworn testimony of my grandmother, who just celebrated her 100th birthday. If I am confirmed, she would have the confusing honor of being the wife and the grandmother of the ambassador to Austria. She too is delighted by the idea. Thanks to my grandparents, the very first country I ever visited was Austria. I stayed at the ambassador's residence in Vienna and I saw firsthand what it means to serve one's country as ambassador. Chief of mission responsibilities are real and they are not to be taken lightly. I saw how hard my grandfather worked, and I also observed how hard our diplomats worked to make the world safer and more secure. I heard from my grandfather about Russia and the Cold War and the threat of nuclear weapons and how the entire Foreign Service labored night and day to keep us all safe, advancing our interests as we slept soundly back at home. Someday, I thought, I want that responsibility too. I have returned to Austria many times since to visit friends and family and even to introduce my children on their first trip to Europe. But I never dreamed I might have the opportunity, if confirmed, to return again in the same job that my grandfather had. 
Austria has a new chancellor and governing coalition, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with its government in pursuit of our shared goals of peace, security, and prosperity in Europe and beyond. Although neutral, Austria is an active and vital participant in many peacekeeping operations, firmly planted in the transatlantic community and an important partner in the fight against crime and terrorism. While it's hard to be fully prepared to be a chief of mission, I have been fortunate to have educational and cultural experiences that have helped me. I've lived in Europe and motivated by my grandfather and my early interest in foreign service, I studied international relations at both Princeton as an undergrad and at Oxford as a graduate student. My business career has also prepared me for the management responsibilities of an ambassador. In my career, I've run companies, evaluated employees, hired division heads, and managed people. I've also set goals and priorities and met those goals. I would bring this experience into my new role if confirmed. As a tech entrepreneur, I believe that America's lead in new technologies powering the digital revolution are a matter of pride and a natural touchpoint for outreach and for advocacy. I would look forward to the opportunity to promote U.S. business, especially technology, in Austria. Vienna is one of the cultural capitals of Europe, and the celebration of cultural excellence is at the core of Austrian identity. My service on the boards of two of America's top museums and my own passions for art and culture have already brought me to Austria. I would look forward to the opportunity to promote art and cultural exchange, further deepening this already strong connection between our societies. And finally, I would look forward to outreach to the Austrian people. In many places, the memories of World War II and the American role in the rebuilding of Europe are fading. As we mark the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan and its positive impact in Europe and Austria, I would hope to refresh the bond between Austrians and Americans on the basis of our common values and shared post-war history. It's an honor to appear before this committee today. If confirmed, I commit to give everything I have to represent all Americans and to serve our country and its interests successfully. I thank you for your time, and I look forward to answering any questions that you might have. Thank you, Mr. Trena. Let me just say, I think it's, it's very pleasing to see three very well-qualified nominees for these important posts. Um, let's start with Dr. Shelton, because uh, I think you really do bring a very unique level of, of uh, expertise to, to this area and to this, this position. On, on Tuesday, uh, we commemorated the murder of Boris Nepsov by dedicating a plaza in front of the Russian embassy in his name, Boris uh, Nemtsov Plaza. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak at that event, and one of the points I made, as we gave up a section of Wisconsin Avenue, by the way, for, and we were happy to do so, uh, one of the points I made is it, it's a tragedy of historic and global proportions that Russia did not continue down the path uh, begun by Boris Yeltsin and Boris Nebsov. Um, I would just like you, and this is a little bit depart or apart from you know, your position, but I just want to utilize, utilize your expertise. What went wrong? What, what happened? Can you just kind of give us some sort of historical perspective? Because Russia just continues to, to, to behave worse, become more menacing, uh, whether it's interfering in our elections, Montenegro, uh, basically an act of war, uh, and now you know, an, an act against uh, our embassy, and not necessarily Russia, but uh, just, just describe what 
from your perspective, has gone wrong with Russia? Well, thank you very much for the, for the question and for the comment, Senator Johnson. And uh, I might say I was very aware of your involvement in that event on Tuesday. And I think um, when an important U.S. government official stands up uh, shoulder to shoulder with the brave and, and bold activists, uh, that was to honor Boris Nemtsov, who was fighting to maintain the democratic dream for Russia. And he was inspired by the American model and our founding values. And he, along with other Russian activists, have, have wanted to secure those institutions of democracy for their own country. I think that the most powerful countermeasure we have against Russian disinformation and propaganda efforts is exactly what, what you were doing and what I think the National Endowment for Democracy has done from its beginning, inspired by Ronald Reagan's vision, in standing with these people who want to shape a better future for their fellow citizens and who would follow the democratic model. What happened with Russia, and, and this is why this post is particularly interesting to me, is they did have a chance under Yeltsin. I, I was uh, working with a team from the Hoover Institution from Stanford in Russia in April 1991 with Yeltsin's team. And they were ready to embrace an open market economy. They wanted accountability, transparency. They wanted rule of law. They wanted the basic civil liberties that Americans enjoy. I think perhaps it was that fateful decision to select uh, President Putin versus Boris Nemtsov. They were both being considered at the time. And what we've seen is in some ways a continuation of the, the cynical tactics of trying to undermine what you have been unable to achieve for yourself. Um, we've seen a continuation of the disinformation and um, propaganda techniques. They've been updated, but they use trolls and bots and false websites and, and uh, unreal personas, whereas we're standing up, encountering that with flesh and blood individuals who are working in their own countries. So um, I think Russia is still preoccupied with um, military prowess and is willing to sacrifice far too much to subsidize um, energy uh, exports to use as a tool of intimidation and they just have the mindset, unfortunately, that, that still is closer to the Soviet model than, than what we would have aspired for them to become. So as Senator Murphy, and I don't want to speak for the senator, but as we have traveled around Europe, it's the same story. Uh, the propaganda, the disinformation, the destabilizing efforts, uh, you know, the invasion of Georgia, Crimea, eastern Ukraine, uh, the attack on Montenegro's parliament, how do you, how do you, I want to ask all three of you, how do you utilize your new position to push back on that, to resist it? Uh, try and attempt to get Russia to behave in a civilized manner that's more stabilizing, it actually promotes peace versus promoting instability. And I'll start with you, Mr. Trena. Oh, thank you, Senator, for that. 
Thank you, Senator, for that important question. Um, I agree with you 100%. I think it is a serious issue, and um, it's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week issue. And really, uh, it is, uh, it's an issue for diplomacy, right? That's why you're sending people like us to these posts to, uh, if confirmed, work uh, every single angle. And I, I, I think it's just constant vigilance. Dr. Shelton. I might note that with regard to Russia's military aggression toward Ukraine, um, with guidance from U.S. Treasury and in cooperation with our G7 allies and the European Union, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development stopped providing any financing for Russia as of July 2014. They have maintained that position. That is one way to make it clear that they do not accept these, this kind of behavior and these blunt force tactics. Mr. Pence. Thank you, Senator, for the question. The United States and our allies, we must stand together. One thing that um, Russia's trying to do is drive wedges between the United States and NATO, between NATO and the European Union, between Finland and each of those institutions. We will enhance and protect the individual security of countries by the exercise of collective strength. We must, not, not only by words, but in deeds, show that we are up to the, ta to the task. Having said that, when President Ninishtu was here last year, he stressed the necessity of undertaking both dialogue and deterrence. They go hand in hand, and that is the function of diplomacy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Again, let me thank you all uh, for your willingness to serve um, as, uh, uh, as representatives of the United States abroad. Mr. Um, Trena, um, I wanted to just ask you a, a question about the state of uh, politics in Austria today. Um, the uh, most recent election resulted in the Freedom Party, the far-right party, uh, gaining 26% of the vote. This is um, a party that has signed a cooperation agreement uh, with Russia's ruling party. Um, and they have been included in the current government. Um, so what's the role of the... This is obviously a, a trend line that we've been watching all over Europe, these far-right parties doing much better, 26% is a big share of the vote in a place like that, and the idea that a party representing 26% of the country would sign an agreement with a Russian political party is very concerning. Uh, what's the, uh, in your preparation for this job, uh, what's your understanding as to the position of the United States government with respect to the Freedom Party, their inclusion in the government, and uh, what will you have to say about that when you're on the ground? Thank you, Senator. And as you point out, this is a really important question. Um, obviously, uh, Austria is a democracy, an advanced democracy, and they have a freely elected government. Um, by all accounts, we're already working well with that new government. Uh, but like any ally or friend, you know, we will ultimately judge that government by their deeds and actions. Um, and, and is it... Uh do you see it as appropriate to raise concerns regarding the increased uh, political power of these 
relatively far-right groups? Thank you, Senator. Um, I, I think there are a number of issues at play, whether it's immigration, religious freedom, et cetera, that um, uh, not unique, frankly, to Austria, but in many places that are all areas that uh, require vigilance uh, on our part and require, to your point, dialogue. Uh, and I also look forward to dialogue with uh, your staff as well on these uh, important matters. Um, another potential point of friction is over the new uh, gas pipeline coming into Europe from Russia, Nord Stream 2. Um, this is um, uh, the Trump administration and many people we've talked to have uh, expressed uh, their desire to continue the opposition to that pipeline that the Obama administration began, but Austria is in favor of it. Um, what uh, can uh, you do as ambassador to uh, try to make Austria understand the risk of making the continent of Europe more dependent on Russian energy? Thank you, Senator. I, I agree 100%. <clears throat> um, it's a very complicated issue. You know, Austria was the first non-Eastern Bloc country to hook up to Russian gas. It was in 1968, so it's 50 years of history there. There's a lot of interconnection between uh, the countries on this, and half of all the gas used in Austria comes from Russia. Um, you know, I think this is a a time to acknowledge that you know we have a great team in place already. The country team is there. Um, if confirmed, I would definitely work very closely with them to understand what's already been done on this. Um, and uh, as a team, certainly work very hard to advocate because I agree with you. I think it's in Austria's best interest and in all of Europe's best interest to have multiple sources of energy uh, for a hundred different reasons. Let me just uh, come back to my first question and, and, uh, and just finish off the thought for you. Um, I think it's very important for U.S. ambassadors to speak up against the growth of far-right parties, in particular far-right parties that are anti-immigrant in nature. Um, the perception of the United States today uh, abroad um, uh, is, um, is deeply clouded by the, the president's perceived antipathy towards immigrants to the United States. Um, and I would argue it's not perceived, it's real. Uh, and so uh, I think it's very important for um, uh, the United States, a country that is built uh, on immigration, to explain to other countries the value uh, of um, being inclusive of people who come from other places. Right now, there is a perception that we are backsliding in our commitment to immigration. Uh, and so I hope that y you will raise concern when elements of the ruling party um, act in ways that violate the best traditions of the United States. Um, uh, Dr. Shelton, the um, uh, bank um, pulled its uh, new investment projects in Russia after 20 14 or stopped new investment projects in Russia um, uh, following a declaration by the European Council um, after the invasion of uh, eastern Ukraine. Um, what's your sense of uh, whether that decision has been impactful at all uh, on the Russian calculus and what are the things Russia would need to do in order to restart investment? I and mean, there's a sizable portfolio that's already there that exists of you know, over $3 billion that the bank is still managing. Um, is, does Russia care that the bank has turned off uh, new investment? I think they care very much. Um, Russia was the largest recipient of EBRD financing 
And prior to uh, stopping the program in uh, July of 2014, uh, financing for Russia was 22% of their portfolio. It was uh, roughly 8.2 billion euros, and uh, it was whittled down very, very quickly. Um, over the next three years, it, it's down to uh, 2.8 billion euros, so roughly $10 billion down to $3.4 billion. That's a reduction down to less than 8% of the portfolio. So I think for a country like Russia that is desperately seeking infrastructure financing, um, it was a very strong message. And the sentiment of the majority of the shareholders has been made very clear to EBRD management and staff that there's no point in bringing new projects involving Russia to the attention of the board of directors because they won't be inclined to consider any such thing um, until Russia uh, conforms to what's required under the Minsk agreement and, um, and they would have to, uh, they would have to uh, go back from their military aggression and uh, it would have to be demonstrated in a very convincing way. And, and so you don't perceive backsliding on that question, internal weakness regarding reinvestment in Russia, unless at the very least Minsk is complied with? Well, I'm not having you're, been you're confirmed, right. but my, my sense is that, that the EBRD directors, and while we have 10%, it takes a majority. In combination with the G7, uh, we have about 57% of the vote. And the European Union is well represented at that bank and has been in alignment with regard to uh, financing for Russia. So my expectation is there would have to be a clear reversal. Um, I just ask one question, Mr. Pence, and then we can uh, move on. Um, either you or uh, Senator Johnson noted that they are taking over the Arctic Council from uh, the United States, the chairmanship, to your chairmanship. Um, one of their priorities uh, is the full implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, can you share with us uh, your personal feelings on whether the United States should uh, re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement and uh, how you will deal with the um, uh, deep disappointment there uh, that the United States is pulling out? Uh, this is a friction point in general with European countries, but uh, for uh, the country you're going to, particularly important given their uh, belief that the Paris Climate Agreement is integral for the future preservation of the Arctic. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, obviously, Finland and uh, its neighboring co countries are fully in favor of the Paris Agreement. I acknowledge that uh, President Trump has been um, clear in his desire to leave leave the agreement behind. Um, I also believe the president has been clear that United States policy will continue with respect to a number, many of the provisions of the Paris deal. Um, having said that, I believe that the administration will um, signal, has signaled his intention to participate in further negotiations on the subject, and we will see what comes of it. He's got diplomatic skills already, Mr. Pence. Very. <laughs> I said, well, 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 well qualified. Well nominees. said. Well said, <laughs> Senator. If <laughs> I actually said that is an actual compliment, so I did not. Uh, I did not mean that. But she's Senator Kainley. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks, and congratulations to the nominees. Mr. Traney, you'll forgive me. I'm going to focus my attention on the Virginians. Um, but actually, I'll probably have a question for you, too. I want to especially congratulate Dr. Shelton and Mr. Pence from Virginia for being nominated. I actually will have a question for you, Mr. Traney, too. But um, first thing to, to Mr. Traney and Mr. Pence, uh, uh, just a piece of advice, because you'll be the head of country missions. When I travel as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, one thing I try to do is meet uh, in countries with the first and second tour FSOs when I go to embassies. And I have fascinating discussions with them. I, I usually don't want the ambassador in the room. Um, and I meet with the first and second tour FSOs and I tell them, you've achieved an amazing job that's really hard to get. Tell me after a little bit of experience what may make you stay and make this a career and what is frustrating uh, and may make you depart. And they never complain about their ambassadors. I've never had that happen. Uh, but, but they do complain about red tape and challenges. Some of them say we have to get so intensely security vetted to get the job. And then once I get the job, if I want to order five pencils, I have to go through an amazing process because they like think I'm going to steal the five pencils or something. So um, it, it, those, those discussions are interesting ones. You, you will be in charge of some fantastic public servants. And I would encourage you to do all you can do to, to uh, make them feel like they can make an entire career out of it, because I think we really need them. Um, Mr. Prince, I wanted to ask a question really a little bit about uh, Senator Murphy on the Arctic Council. Finland is, is, has taken a two-year um, position as the chair of the council following the United States. In, in preparation for this, how, how much do you know about you know, what the priorities are, either of the United States or Finland or the entire council right now? What are the what are the areas you think the council will be devoting its attention to over the next couple of years? We talk about this a lot on the Armed Services Committee where I also serve, uh, but I'm curious as to your understanding about what the priorities of the council or the U.S. or Finland and it might be. Um, thank you, Senator, for the question. The um, Arctic Council itself has enunciated what its priorities are. The security of the Arctic, the preservation of the ecological situation, the climate of the Arctic, the um, free and open ability of nations to transit the area in, in a time of, um, of um, clearing seas. And um, they expect overall to ensure the safety of bordering nations and those who employ it. They are also acutely aware that with the, ch with the change in the climate and the melting of the, of the ice, that the Arctic is going to become an increasingly direct and profitable route for international trade that will, is gauged that's going to be more important and more and a cheaper uh, avenue than the Suez Canal. The geopolitical consequences of that are going to be ex extraordinary. Um, they are also, Finland as we are, um, we're acutely concerned about the militar militarization of the Arctic. I believe the Russians have um, 16 bases. They've either opened or are reopening. They're building a number of airfields up there. They have 40-some heavy nuclear-powered, uh, excuse me, they're not all nuclear-powered, 40 heavy icebreakers in the area. They, they have a big head start of us up there, to which we, Finland, and the free world needs to respond. Thank you for that. Let me ask you each, um, Mr. Traina and Mr. Pence, a, a question dealing with another aspect of our military, which is NATO. Both Finland and 
um, Austria, neither are NATO members, but both are participating with NATO in some critical ways. Why don't you talk about the current state of the relationship between first Austria and then Finland and NATO and whether you see any dramatic change in that relationship uh, in the coming years? Thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, <clears throat> as you as you note, Austria is a non-aligned nation, um, but they are part of the Partnership for Peace initiative associated with NATO. And um, they are also are really very actively participating in numerous peacekeeping um, initiatives. So currently they are uh, in 14 different peacekeeping initiatives uh, in places like Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo. The Kosovo obviously is a NATO initiative, the peacekeeping there. So um, while they are, uh, uh, they are by policy non-aligned, they are really a great partner in a lot of these areas as well as sort of general um, uh, crime fighting and trafficking and other areas like that. Thank you. Mr. Pence. Thank you, Senator. Um, first, indeed, NATO is not, excuse me, Finland is not a member of NATO. It does take, um, um, it is involved in various NATO operations, uh, including the Operation Resolute Support in uh, Afghanistan. Um, Finland has participated in um, actions in um, Iraq, and um, they they're in a unique position to join or not to join. At present, um, a majority, a slight majority, but a majority nevertheless of the Finnish people are opposed to Finland joining NATO. Um, that may change, but until it does, they're not a member. But they work closely with NATO and um, permit um, certain actions within their country in furtherance of NATO policies. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Shelton, if I could ask you one question. I, I have, uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee, we're a little bit creatures of our region, so almost all my work for five years has been the Middle East and the Americas, and I've done little work on the EBRD, but I was, I was noting something that I was curious about. One country has graduated from the, uh, from the EBRD, and that's the Czech Republic in 2008. What are criteria used to gauge whether a country kind of is sufficiently developed to graduate out? Are there other countries close to graduating? Um, does the EBRD, uh, as we expand the number of countries we operate in, is there any danger of the EBRD spreading itself too thin with the resources that it has? Thank you for the question, Senator Kane. Um, graduation is a priority um, through the international affairs part of the Treasury Department, and we encourage that. There there is a graduation process at the EBRD, and you are correct that only that single country, the Czech Republic, um, has graduated. The slowness in, in having countries qualify to proceed, I think it, to some extent reflects a very long economic recovery in Europe since the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Uh, also, I believe that countries um, have been affected by Russia's aggression, and um, they are reluctant to give up sources of financing. They feel pressure uh, with regard to energy security, and so they have wanted to stay engaged with the EBRD. Um, it would be my uh, focus, if confirmed, to 
to have a more transparent, rules-based process for evaluating when a country is successfully moving toward graduation. Uh, they do, at the EBRD, a country analysis for each new recipient, and they, that also includes a political assessment because they not only have to embrace uh, democratic principles as, as an ideal, but they have to demonstrate mm -hmm. uh, in a genuine way that, that they are applying them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Hey, Senator Kane. Um, you've been asking, asked some specific questions. Let me just throw it open to a little more general question. I'll ask each one of you the same one. Uh, I just wanted your opinion, your, your evaluation, if you confirmed, what is going to be the top issue if you have issues, you can expand it. But I mean, really, the top issue you think you'll be dealing with, and then what, what would be the top opportunity in terms of the relationship between the US and, and either your country or your organization? I'll start with you, Mr. Pence. Thank you, Senator. I'm a student of Cicero who lived about 2,000 years ago. If I may paraphrase part of one of his works, civil liberties are meaningless if the state is not secure. That is the first and foremost and last sine qua non on the international stage. We need to assure ourselves and the Finnish people and each other and the rest of the free world, really, that there will be peace. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I do think energy security for Europe is a, is a top priority, um, and EBRD financing uh, has, has provided resources for energy infrastructure. We need to make sure that the projects provide alternative routes, alternative suppliers, and an array of, of different types of energy available to countries so they are not subject to intimidation. Um, I would I would seek to advance the national security interests of the United States as well as the economic interests. American companies should have a chance not only to bid on projects, so we need to have a transparent procurement process, but also the project should be oriented to increase growth so that American products can find export markets in those recipient countries. Um, I see this, if confirmed, uh, to be an opportunity for the United States to leverage its capital investment through strong leadership, working with our allies very closely to advance our strategic interests and, and to try to shape, shape events uh, across Europe and the other regions of operation, which now include the Middle East and Northern Africa and Central Asia. Um, we want to have the most advantageous economic and political outcomes for our own nation. Thank you, Dr. Sheldon. Mr. Chena. Thank you so much, Senator. Um, so first, priority. Priority will always be security, the security and safety of my mission of the 15,000 or so Americans who reside in Austria and the 700,000 or so Americans who visit Austria every year. Um, issue, I think currently en the energy issue is a significant one that merits a lot of thought and attention. And opportunities, I think, you know, leveraging our strong relationship with Austria vis-a-vis -vis their neighboring nations and shoring those nations up 
as well as uh, business. I think you know Austria is an advanced economy, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to do more together in that arena. Thank you. Hey, Mr. Trainer, uh, Senator Murphy. Yeah, just uh, two final questions. Um, Mr. Trainer, let me build uh, upon the opportunity you acknowledged, which is to work with uh, neighboring countries. Um, one of the points of tension between Austria and neighboring countries is this Im issue of immigration that I had mentioned. Uh, the new government uh, has advocated for an array of measures, including border closures, uh, to reduce immigration not only into Austria, but also through Austria into Europe. And that often runs counter, particularly uh, with the generally more liberal refugee policies of Italy and Germany. So what's the role of the United States uh, to try to make sure that uh, Austria's restrictive immigration policy doesn't end up, uh, A, pulling apart Europe, uh, and B, simply transferring the burden uh, of, of refugee flows, uh, which continue, um, uh, onto other countries. Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, uh, I, I acknowledge it is absolutely an issue, a, very, a highly topical issue right now. I think there is an opportunity for us to work directly with them to continue to communicate our uh, thoughts and opinions on this. Uh, there's also an opportunity via the EU. Right? So there's discontinuity right now between the EU's position and Austria's position on this same issue. Uh, and so I think we triangulate uh, and, and we have continual dialogue on this. Um, uh, and, and Dr. Shelton, I want to pick up on one of the things you mentioned in your last answer, which was energy security. Um, how do we compete with a Russian energy export model that is based on outright subsidy to drive down pricing, uh, whereas we are using more traditional financing vehicles uh, to try to counter that influence? Uh, I sort of, I've failed to understand um, how we compete with the Russians on energy security without a direct subsidy of our own coming either from the United States or from the Europeans. So um, how does a bank uh, try to deal with the issue of energy security when the Russians are just throwing cash into these projects? Nord Stream 2, for instance, cannot work um, as, a, as a pure financial play. It only works with a just heavy Russian subsidy on the front and back end. Um. Thank you so much for that question, and I think you make an excellent point. Um, we've seen that Russia is willing to, to subsidize activities that are not in their economic interest, and we can only assume for purposes of, of um, political power using energy as, as a weapon. What the EBRD has done, which I think is quite wise, is they provided significant financing for the Southern Gas Corridor. Um, the financing projects have aimed both at the gas fields, uh, these are deep water wells in the Caspian Sea, and also the pipelines to guarantee alternative delivery routes. And the EB EBRD uh, does work based on market principles, but they've been able to, to put together very attractive and sometimes creative um, financing for special projects. They have the confidence of, of Western providers of foreign direct investment. They work well with banks, and uh, so they can they can provide um, financing with with highly desirable uh, attributes, and in that way be competitive. 
Um, again, let me thank you all. I, I think you'll all be confirmed, uh, hopefully uh, soon. Uh, and we really look forward to those of us who work uh, on translating the issues are heavily involved uh, in them. Uh, look forward to working with all three of you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Murphy. Again, I want to thank the nominees for your willingness to serve. I want to thank their families uh, for your willingness to, to support your family members uh, to the, the training children. Uh, I, I certainly understand that the concern about leaving their friends, but it's a pretty exciting opportunity. Your dad's doing a pretty important thing, so I'm sure you enjoy your, your, your time in Austria. Uh, with that, uh, again, thank you for uh, providing us with the testimonies and responses. The hearing record will remain open for statements or questions until the close of business on Monday, March 5th. This hearing is adjourned.